Amen. Amen. Good evening on a rainy Wednesday night. Good to see you guys. Glad you're here. We are in our third week, and tonight we're going to look at the issue of baptism. What does the Bible say about baptism? Specifically, uh, we're going to look at the difference between two different positions in the history of the church, what's called believer's baptism or credo-baptism, credo meaning a Latin word for believer's baptism. That would be the stance of this church. Or infant baptism or pedo-baptism, pedo being a Latin word for infant. So the difference between Christians historically who have thought that believers only should be baptized or whether we should baptize infants. And then I want us to drill down on the question of uh, looking more closely at this idea of believer's baptism. At what age should a believer be baptized? Try to help parents think through that issue a little bit more clearly. Um, so next week we're going to look at politics. Um, that's a, a, obviously a, a very hot topic. Um, and then we're going to look at marijuana, uh, the, the Christian stance towards marijuana and the, I think, inevitable legalization of marijuana that is coming. And then we'll end on the last Wednesday of February looking at the uh, issue of uh, homosexuality and gender identity and how Christians should posture themselves towards that. Can a person be a homosexual and also claim to be a Christian, or can they be transgender and claim to be a Christian? And so we'll look at some of those issues. All right, well, let me put the three questions that I want to ask and answer on the screen tonight just to serve as an outline. First question is, what does baptism signify? Uh, what is baptism and what does it signify? I think we got a list up there of all three questions. There it is. Why do some Christians believe in infant baptism? As I mentioned, the, the, the stance of this church, we're a Baptist church. We believe in believers-only baptism. So, but we're going to look at our brothers and sisters that would believe in infant baptism and why they believe that. And then thirdly, at what age is it appropriate for a believer to be baptized? And in that question, I want to help give guidance to parents thinking about when it is appropriate from a believers-only position of baptism, when it is appropriate for, say, a young child to be baptized. So um, with that, let me pray, and then we're going to dive in. we got lots of scriptures to read tonight, and we're going to seek to answer those three questions. We're going to have some stuff on the screen, and I hope this will be beneficial. Let me say before I pray that um, I know that there may be some of you here that would hold to a different position that I hold to, and that as the leadership of this church holds to, which is a believers-only view of baptism. I want to say that I'm, I love you. I'm grateful for you. There are many, many people in the history of the church many leaders, many notable scholars in the history of the church that I have gleaned very much from, uh, that are some of my theological and pastoral heroes, but that I disagree with. And so what I offer tonight is, um, although I'm, I'm convinced of, of the stance that I believe is biblical, I offer it in a spirit of charity and humility and I want you to know that even if you disagree with me and the stance of this church, that you certainly are, are loved, and I love you, and I'm grateful that you are here. So let me read Matthew chapter 28 um, and verse 18 through 20, and then I'll pray. This is what Jesus says to frame our, our uh, time thinking about baptism. At the end of the gospel, after his resurrection, before he ascends to heaven, Jesus says in verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, all authority... In heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
So Jesus clearly commands, he doesn't suggest, but he commands for his church, his disciples, to make disciples of all nations and then to baptize them. So baptism is not an option for Christian, Christians and the church. It's a command for us to do. So question number one, what is baptism and what does it signify? Well, I've got a, a few bullet points that we're going to just put all up on the screen and then we're going to kind of unpack them by looking at some scripture. Baptism is a sign of a believer's union with Christ by faith. It is an outward sign of the inward work of regeneration. Regeneration is just another way of saying salvation or being born again. It's an outward sign that points to the inward work that God does in a sinner's heart, a dead sinner's heart, to make them alive. Just a few bullet points there. Baptism signifies that a person has died to their old self in Christ, that they've been raised in Christ to walk in the newness of life, and they've been washed from their sins, and they've been grafted into Christ's body, the church. And so we're going to look at some passages in the New Testament, primarily two, Romans 6 and Colossians chapter 2. We're going to look at those passages and see how I think they are the clearest teaching in the Bible on baptism and why, the, the, why those points that I just mentioned are true. I think they come from those passages. I said I was going to pray. I think I forgot to pray, didn't I? So let me pray now. Lord, help us as we think about this important topic. Lord, thank you for the church, the gathered body of Christ, the universal body of Christ, people from every tribe and tongue uh, and, and, and nation that are gathered under Christ Realize, Lord, that there are believers um, that differ from the stance that I will present tonight. Lord, I thank you for them. I thank you for the charitability that you, that you give us as, as believers in Christ. But, Lord, we do want to seek to be as biblical as we can. And so in that vein, Lord, help us to think deeply about this issue. Help us to be clear. Help me to be clear about this. And I pray that you'd bring clarity to these brothers and sisters tonight and friends that are gathered. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, is, I think is the main text in the New Testament that really gives us the, the clearest theology of baptism, from which really I derive all of those points there about what baptism signifies, that we've died to Christ, we've been raised with Christ, and we've been washed from our sins and grafted into his body. So this is what Paul teaches in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And what unites us to Christ, it's our faith. That's the context of Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, that we have been united to Christ. We've been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So let's just think about some phrases in this passage in Romans chapter 6, which is the clearest expression of the theology of baptism I think in the whole Bible. We are, Paul says, buried in water. That means that we have, and he says, that we've died to our old self. We've been buried 
therefore with him, meaning Christ, into death. What is the picture that Paul is painting for us here? We need to understand what's being symbolized in baptism. Baptism isn't just some strange ritual that, that just sort of popped up in the New Testament with, with John the Baptist. Baptism is a picture of judgment. In fact, all the way back in the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 6, we see that God judges the world with the flood, the floodwaters of God's wrath pour down on the world. We see the, the waters of the river pour down on the enemies of God's people when God parts the, uh, the, the sea and the river uh, to have God's people pass over and through the, the sea and the river. So water, the floodwaters in the Old Testament are a picture of judgment, a picture of wrath. And so Jesus, what Jesus is doing for us on the cross is he is taking the wrath of God on the cross. So in a sense, God's flood water of his wrath that was pictured in the flood and that is pictured on God's enemies in the Exodus is poured out on Christ on the cross. He substitutes himself for us. In his death on the cross, Jesus represents us. This is the foundation of our understanding of the gospel. And when Jesus represents us, the Bible tells us that we are in him. We are represented by him in his death. Jesus takes our punishment. He takes our sin on himself and he dies on the cross for our sins. And what Paul is saying here theologically in Romans 6 is that in salvation, what happens to us is that we are in Christ, that God sees us as in Christ. And so the punishment that should be ours, Jesus takes for us and we are in him and we receive the benefits of Jesus extinguishing the wrath of God on the cross for us. So in that sense, we have died with Christ on the cross. That's what Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we're buried in the water. We're died. We have died with Christ to our old self as Jesus has bore the wrath of God on the cross for us, the floodwaters of God's wrath. And so in our baptism, we are picturing like we're going underneath the waters of God's wrath in Christ. And we are coming up out of the water because Jesus came up out of the tomb. He defeated death. And that's the next, that's the next thing that Paul says. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. And so we've been raised with Christ out of the water. That's what baptism signifies. It's going down into the water to die. You can't breathe underwater. And water represents God's judgment. And you come up out of the water in resurrection in the newness of life in Christ because of Christ. So we are raised with Christ to walk in the newness of life. 
Jesus was raised for our justification, Romans 4, 25 says. He didn't stay dead. He defeats death, and we are raised with him. This is the absolute ground zero of our salvation. This is how Paul puts, how he pictures, how he describes salvation for us in Ephesians 2. He says in Ephesians 2, verse 4, now remember what happens before verse 4, we're dead in our sins, right? We're, we're dead and we are objects of God's wrath like the rest of mankind. So we should be objects of the floodwaters of God's wrath. That's the conclusion of Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. But then in Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 6, this is what happens in salvation. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So, see, we were dead and now we are alive, and it's because we're in Christ. The, the death, the penalty, the punishment that was on us, Jesus removes, and he brings us back to life. And how does this happen? It happens through the mechanism of faith. And that's what Paul says in verse 8, Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So think about just the logic of what's going on. Think about the sequence of what's going on in our salvation. We are dead. Our hearts are dead. It's not beating. We cannot respond to God. We are unable to respond to his call. We're unable to respond to his grace. But when God determines, chooses, foreknows, predestines, foreloves a person, he calls them by the gospel. And the call of the gospel regenerates them. It gives us a new heart. And that new heart now is equipped with the gift of saving faith that instantaneously the newly made alive, regenerated dead sinner puts on faith, uh, exercises in Christ. And now the faith that we exercise in Christ unites us to him and all the benefits that Christ accrued in his life and death and resurrection are now ours. So his dying and absorbing of God's punishment is accredited to us. And our sin is given to him and it's removed. And his rising and his victory is credited to us. And we are in him and we are raised up with Christ in the heavenly places. And your salvation is so certain that Paul even speaks of your position being already seated with him in heavenly places. Even though you feel very much like you're still in the muck and mire of this earth, which is also simultaneously true. So you see this theology, and Paul is saying here in Romans 6, this is what baptism is signifying. It's signifying the union of a dead heart that has been made alive, that has gone down into the floodwaters of wrath with Jesus, who's absorbed it for us and risen with him. We don't do any of it. Jesus does it for us. And the faith that we have that then we express in him is what unites us to Christ and we are saved. This is very much what Paul says in the next verse that is the next, uh, I think, most explicit and clear theology of baptism. I'll read it quickly uh, because I think Paul is saying essentially the same thing here, and we'll get to it a little bit later when we look at the infant baptism view. But Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, in him, 
you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So clearly Paul is not talking about physical circumcision here. He is talking about spiritual circumcision. He's talking about a circumcision made without hands. He's spiritualizing the picture of physical circumcision. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about the circumcision of the heart, which is salvation. He says, In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. I think that's a clear reference to Christ's death on the cross. It's not clearly talking about the circumcision of Christ as an infant during his incarnation because that would be saying that you would be saved by God by the physical circumcision of the baby Christ. Clearly that's not what's happening. Circumcision here is being spiritualized as salvation, spiritual circumcision of the heart. And then he links it with baptism, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So through this faith, you are united to Christ. You're spiritually circumcised. Faith is given to you. You're united to Christ. You're buried and you're raised with Christ. I think Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 is saying almost exactly the same thing that Romans chapter 6 is saying. It's picturing salvation and baptism as a display, as we said, an outward sign of the salvation that a believer has experienced. A few comments about this. The spiritual realities that, uh, that the spiritual realities clearly portrayed in these verses of dying and rising and being united to Christ by faith are only true of believers. Only believers can have faith. Infants are not capable of having faith. Therefore, baptism is a sign that signifies, points to actual salvation, not hopeful future salvation. In these two passages, which I think are the two clearest and most explicit passages on the theology of baptism, they clearly speak about what has already happened, not what might happen. Okay, before we move on to looking at the infant baptism uh, position and its logic, let me, just, let me just mention a couple verses that are often misunderstood, even from a believer's only baptism position, that I think warrant further ex- explanation. Just a couple verses about baptism. The first is 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. Uh, this is a tricky passage that's saying a lot of things, kind of verses 18 through 22. We won't just get into all of it. But Peter says, baptism, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, and he's referring to what he says before, corresponding to Noah and the ark. So he's making the analogy that Noah was saved in the ark from the flood. And so I think that's a clear reference to Noah is saved from the floodwaters of God's wrath by the ark which is a picture of Christ, the saving of the ark. Those who, are, those who are in the ark are safe from the floodwaters, and the ark is a picture of Christ. Those who are in Christ are saved from the floodwaters of God's wrath. And so he's saying baptism, which now corresponds to this, meaning the judgment of the floodwaters of God's wrath, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the reason I bring this up is that over the course of the history of the church, some people have misinterpreted this verse to think that baptism 
actually does some sort of saving. Because Peter seems to say here on the surface, baptism, which corresponds to this, meaning judgment in the Old Testament, now saves you. But upon further inspection, if we look at that verse closely, Peter's not saying that the outward act of baptism is what saves you, but he clarifies it at the end of the verse, and he says what's actually the substance of baptism is that is, it is an appeal to God for a good conscience, which is another way of saying faith. It's an appeal to God for him to cleanse you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So some people have appealed to this verse and says, oh, this, is, this means that you're, in fact, Catholics sometimes refer to this verse. And I'll talk briefly in just a moment about the difference between what Catholics believe and what our Pado-Baptist friends believe, which is significant. And they look at this verse and they say, oh, well, baptism has some sort of saving power. It doesn't. And no Protestant Christian believes that. Another verse that sometimes people get tripped up on is John chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, specifically chapter 5. This is Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus in John 3, starting in verse 3. Jesus answered him, speaking to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Verse 5, here's the verse that sometimes has been misunderstood throughout the history of the church. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so this verse has been interpreted three different ways sort of historically in the history of the church. The first is, which is wrong, which I think the Catholic Church believes, is that you need to be baptized to be saved. They read that phrase that unless one is born of, the, of water, meaning baptism, they think, and the Spirit, meaning salvation, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so they think that water baptism is a necessary component of the work of salvation. I don't think that can be the case because then that would contradict much of the rest of the whole rest of the New Testament, what it says about salvation. So we can rule that out. Some people have thought that this may refer to that the born of water phrase there refers to physical birth. Like how we say sometimes, uh, not we say, we say all the time, that a woman's, like a, her water breaks at the beginning of labor. And so there's been an interpretation in the past that this is a reference to the beginning of the physical birthing process of, 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 a, of a mother's water breaking. That may be the case. I don't think that's what Jesus was saying here. I think this, and this is the historical Protestant understanding of this verse, is that it is a reference to an Old Testament phrase referring to salvation as being both of the water and spirit, both of those two words really talking about the same action of the Spirit's work in salvation, and that the sprinkling of water in the Old Testament or the sprinkling of blood is often pictured as the work of atonement. And that's what I think is going on here. Let me read for you Ezekiel 36, verse 25 and 26, this new covenant that Ezekiel is speaking. He says, of this time, speaking of when Jesus will come prophetically, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Clearly, we refer to that verse often. That's speaking about the new covenant promise of regeneration. And it's described here in the Old Testament metaphorically as this sprinkling 
The Spirit's work of sprinkling water in a metaphorical way of cleansing a person, removing their heart of stone and giving them a, a new heart. Wayne Grudem, uh, a noted New Testament scholar, helpfully says here that Ezekiel speaks of a spiritual washing that will come in the days of the new covenant when God puts his spirit within his people. In light of this, to be born of water and the spirit is a spiritual washing that occurs when we are born again, just as we receive a spiritual, not a physical, new heart at the time, at that time as well. So that's the traditional Protestant verse. So don't be tripped up maybe by a Catholic friend who looks at those two verses and says, oh, you need to be baptized to be, to be saved. Two comments here before we, 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 I make one final, final kind of summary comment about, about this particular view, about these verses. This is, this is a good example of why having a good study Bible is just very, very helpful. If you get tripped up on these verses, you got like the ESV study Bible or other study Bibles that are, are faithful, they can just give you some notes. We'll just clearly outline for you how uh, just the major, clear, uh, faithful interpretation of these verses. And also, this is just a, a good reminder of a, of a basic rule of interpretation when we read the Bible. We need to let the Bible interpret itself. The Bible does not contradict itself ever. It's inerrant, meaning it's without error. It's infallible. It's unable to make an error. It's perfect. It's divine. It's inspired by God. It's breathed out. And so, as a rule of interpretation, when we come up against an unclear passage, like 1 Peter 3 and John chapter 3, verse 5, we need to interpret the unclear passage in light of the mountain of clear passages that speak to that issue. And so if you've got one or two verses that seem to, like, what's going on there? Well, I know it, you can instantly rule out much of the heresy that exists in the church if you just obey this principle of, well, this verse can't disagree with these 15 other verses that talk about baptism is not saving, and so it must not mean that, and that will put you on the right path of thinking more faithfully about what the right interpretation of that passage is. Let the clear passages inform your understanding of the less clear passages. Okay, stepping out of just those two passages, let me just say in summary about this believer's baptism position, that baptism signifies union with Christ that only a believer can do. A couple things I want to say, that these passages, primarily Romans 6 and Colossians chapter 2, are really the central reasons why I believe and why I think we as a church believe and practice believer's baptism. I think Jesus commands it. I think we should obey it. I think Paul clearly teaches it and fills in the theology of baptism in Romans 6 and Colossians 2. And um, I, think, I think believers should be baptized as a believer. We could talk more about modes of baptism. I think the clear mode of baptism in the New Testament is full immersion. Um, I think that's clear just by the, the, the Greek word that's used for baptism in the vast majority of the New Testament. Jesus was fully immersed, and all the baptisms that we see in the New Testament are full immersion. Okay, question number two. Why do some Christians believe in infant baptism? So we've just sketched out, uh, and we could spend a lot more time on that question, and we could spend a lot more time on this question, but I've just, in an overarching sort of way, sketched out the theology of the believers-only position from Paul's letters in Romans 6 and Colossians chapter 2. Why then do some Christians believe in infant baptism? And again, I want to say that I am grateful for many of my brothers and sisters that hold this position. I repeat that many of my theological heroes in the history of the church have held this position. 
And so I am uh, I'm not in any way wanting to be uncharitable. Um, and I want to give just a, an overarching sketch or summary of the main positions of those, as I understand it, of those who hold this position and why they hold it. I also want to say emphatically, before I get into the main tenets of this argument, that when, I refer, when I'm referring to infant baptism in answering this question, I, am not, I want to distinguish it adamantly from the Catholic view of infant baptism. What our Protestant friends that would believe in infant baptism believe about infant baptism is com- completely different from what Catholics believe. Catholics wrongly believe and really what Catholics believe is very difficult to understand because even Catholic dogma sometimes contradicts itself and it's very muddied and hard to follow. But essentially, Catholics still hold to this notion that some saving grace is mediated through the act of baptizing an infant. That it's a work that is, that is part of the, the, the structure of how a person is saved which contradicts the whole, I think, teaching of the Bible in the New Testament. It contradicts the whole reason for the Protestant Reformation that we are saved not by our works, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And there's lots of reasons that Catholics believe that wrongly, that we don't have time to, but I just want to make this point now that when I'm talking about my Protestant friends that believe in infant baptism, what they believe is very different from what the Catholics believe. So what do our Protestant friends that believe in infant, baptisms, infant baptism believe? Well, uh, admittedly, it's, uh, it's uh, R.C. Sproul, who passed away a couple years ago, who's one of those heroes that believed in infant baptism, one of those heroes of mine, admitted in a public teaching about this when he and John MacArthur debated each other at some conference uh, several years ago. He admitted that the logic of infant baptism is a bit complicated. And I, I, I think that that's true. It is a bit complicated. And so we could spend a lot more time than I will give to it, but let me sketch it out as best I can. Here's the main argument. It's that those who believe in infant baptism see a continuity, uh, a continuity between God's covenants in the old covenant and the new covenant and their signs. They see a real continuity about way, the way God marked off his people in the Old Testament and the way God marks off his people in the new So distilling that down a little bit, let me give you the logic, as I understand it, of infant baptism. The logic holds that God has one plan of salvation, one covenant of grace. And in large extent, I think that's true. And that circumcision, the act of circumcising, cutting away of the male foreskin of a male infant at eight days of age for the nation of Israel was the outward sign of the old covenant, what it meant to be part of the people of God. God clearly commanded that to Abraham and in the Mosaic law. So circumcision is the outward sign of the old covenant. Baptism is the outward sign of the new covenant. I think nobody disputes that. Both those things are true. Circumcision marked off Israel in the old. Baptism is to mark off the church in the new. So, the logic follows, there is a parallel, there's a connection, there's a continuity between circumcision, a continuity between the purposes of circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New. They're doing, in many ways, 
similar things, if not the same thing according to those who believe in this position. They're marking off God's people. Circumcision in the old, baptism in the new. And so then the logic follows and terminates on the position that circumcision was for infants in the Old Testament. Therefore, baptism is for infants as well in the new. Now, there's much more we could delve into, but again, as, as, as our, our, our dear brother R.C. Sproul said, it, it, it's a complicated and long argument, and, and it would take more than time than we have tonight. But I think, that's the, I think that's a faithful sketch of the argument. Here's my response to that. Here's the Baptistic, the believers-only Baptist response to that. That while the New Covenant and while the Old Covenant and New Covenant certainly are similar, they're different. In fact, the Bible actually, I think, says they're different. Jeremiah chapter 31, the prophet says in verse 31, starting in verse 31, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by hand, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So there Jeremiah is telling us, as he's prophesying about this new covenant, that it's going to be different from the old. And then in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews, I think, says the exact same thing. Hebrews chapter 6 um, this is actually Hebrews chapter 8, I believe, verse 7 and 8. I might have given you the wrong verse. Um, so if you can change that real quickly. I think it's Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. Or maybe it's Hebrews chapter 6. Let me actually look in my actual Bible. How about that? That's a revolutionary thought. Um, Hebrews, I'll tell you here in just a second. Yeah, it is Hebrews chapter 8. I'm sorry, I gave you Hebrews chapter 6. So it's Hebrews chapter 8, uh, verses 7 and 8, and then Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. So if you can change that. There you go, good. Uh, no, that's not it. Um, if you could... Hebrews chapter 8. I think that's... Uh, um, that's verse 13. Okay, I'm just going to read what I got in front here. This is Hebrews chapter 8, verses... Verses 6 and 7. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better. So the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is the mediator of a new and better covenant. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Follow the logic there. There's a difference. Certainly there's continuity. Certainly the old is a shadow that's pointing to the new. There's no doubt in that. There's all sorts of gospel in the Old Testament. But it is an old covenant. Then Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. The old is like the rocket booster that's pointing to the reality of Christ. And then in verse 13 of chapter 8, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So Christ brings a new covenant. The old covenant pointed to it in exterior form, but the new covenant is now the spiritual reality that the external old covenant was pointing to. So circumcision 
Follow the logic on this. I know I'm using these words a lot, and this might, you know, you might be getting lost here, but follow me. Circumcision and baptism are similar, there's no doubt. They function similarly, but they are different. Physical circumcision marked God's people along ethnic familial lines. Baptism marks God's people along spiritual lines. And we read that from Romans chapter 6 and Colossians 2. Baptism is tied to the spiritual reality that we are, the, that we are born again, not the physical reality that we're physically born. Circumcision said to Old Testament Israel, this is what circumcision, I think, was saying to Old Testament Israel. It was a cry to the gospel. It was a command. It was saying to Israel, make yourselves new by cutting off the male foreskin. Why? why? You might be thinking, what, 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 what's with circumcision? Well, by the way, what is with circumcision? And by the way, it can only happen to male infants, obviously. I think what's going on in circumcision and why God chose that is that when you think about the problem of humanity, that we are sinners, and what did Adam and Eve pass down to us, their progeny, Cain and Abel? Sin. And what did they pass down to their children? Sin. And how does, how does sin get passed down? Through the physical act of conception and birth. And where does that start? It starts right where circumcision cuts. And it's, it's, God, it's God saying, it's a kind of point to the spiritual reality that mankind is sinful and all he can ever make is sin. And so it's a call to cleanse yourself. It's, a, it's the law. It's the command to cleanse yourself. But it's a law that can only shine light. It doesn't actually bring the cleansing. It just commands the cleansing. It says to the man who's responsible, Adam, the man in whom is responsible, make yourself new. But it can't ever truly make a person new. Whereas the gospel in the New Testament actually makes us new. And so circumcision says, make yourself new. Baptism says, this one has been made new. I think that's the difference between circumcision and baptism. Circumcision says, make yourself new. You'll be marked off with this shadow. Baptism says, this one has been made new. They are marked off by the spiritual reality of their heart being circumcised. So baptism is for those who have been spiritually circumcised, born again through faith. And one of the verses that our, 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 my infant Baptist convictional friends point to to link circumcision and baptism, the, the, really the, the, one of the main verses in the Bible, because I, I don't think there are any verses that teach infant baptism in the Bible explicitly at all. One of the verses, one of the main verses they point to is Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12, which I read earlier. And they see, let me read it again, they see a connection between circumcision and baptism. And they say, well, Paul put those two things together, even in the New Testament, so they're together. So we circumcised infants in the old, we should baptize infants in the new. That's the logic. But let's read again Paul's logic in Colossians 2. I think Paul is actually saying the opposite. Verse 12, Colossians, or verse 11, Colossians 2. 
In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. He's using physical circumcision as a kind of picture of the spiritual reality of salvation. A circumcision made without hands. In other words, a spiritual reality. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And as I said earlier, that's not talking about the physical circumcision of the incarnate baby Christ. It's speaking about Christ on the cross. His flesh being cut on the cross for us is what saved us. And then, verse 12, he links salvation in verse 11 with baptism in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him so that's going down in the waters and coming up from the waters. How do you do that? Through faith. And who and only who can have faith? Those who are old enough to hear and trust and believe in the gospel and be regenerated in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So my response to the logic of of infant baptism is that circumcision corresponds to baptism, but it's different from baptism. Baptism says this one has been made new, and none of this is true for infants. In short, infant baptism, I think, applies the sign of the new covenant to those who are not united to Christ, or not yet united to Christ, and might not ever be united to Christ. It divorces the sign from the reality. So I think that's the main argument. Several other arguments that I want to mention, and then I want to get into this question to help parents. Several other arguments that proponents of infant baptism put forward is they look in the New Testament, specifically in the books of, book of Acts, and one time in, in 1 Corinthians, I believe it is, where there is the mention of household baptisms in the New Testament, where these Gentiles, in one case Cornelius, and then Lydia's household, where they believe, and the leader of the household believe, and then the word came to the rest of their family, and all of their household believed and was baptized. And people, the, the, as the argument goes, they say, well, certainly there were infants in these households, and so it says that the whole ba- household was baptized, and so that is a kind of implicit, uh, uh, implicit uh, argument for infant baptism. But it, it's a weak argument. It's an argument from silence. There's, there's no clear mention of infants in those homes. And on, in three of the four cases in Acts, when it mentions household baptisms, it says of all the people in the household that they believed, which is the action that only a believer can have. So that, I think that's a weak argument. Uh, it doesn't hold up. I, I think it's, it's an argument from silence is reading infants into the, the passage when they're not mentioned. Um, there are a few other verses, uh, like Acts chapter 2, verses 28 through 39. Peter says, uh, the preaching on the day of Pentecost, verse 38, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise of the Holy Spirit, regeneration, is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so... Uh, our infant Baptist, Baptist friends would look at that verse and say, well, verse 39 is saying this promise is for you and your children, and so we should baptize um, our children as well. They see implied in that to carry over circumcision of infants in the old into the new and baptize infants in the new. But I think if we read further on in, in verse 39, if we just kind of think carefully about what Peter's saying in this sermon, he's talking about 
He's talking about a general promise of the gospel to go across the, the, the generational lines and across ethnic lines to the Gentiles, those who are far off. But he qualifies that at the end of verse 39. He specifies it to everyone and only those, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. In other words, those who are, are called effectively. Those are the ones, those who, the ones who, are, who come to faith are the ones who should be baptized. So several concluding thoughts. Um, while infant baptism may be well-intentioned, uh, I believe it is un- unbiblical. Unintentionally, I think, unintentionally, and I say this with a lot of charity, I think it serves to blur oftentimes the, 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 the salvation, the initiating moment of salvation. God has given us a clear line of demarcation to mark off God's people. God is always concerned with being very clear about who his people are. We see in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus saying when he's talking about church discipline, and he's saying if there's unrepentant sin in the church, that you are to be so severe with a brother that's walking or a sister that's walking in unrepentant sin, that you're to put them out of the church. In 1 Corinthians 5, he talks to uh, the, the, the church that's letting this man sleep with his father's wife, and he says, hand this man over to Satan. In other words, put this one out from among you. God is very, very clear and very interested in clearly marking off his people. And in the New Testament, what it means to be part of the people of God is not to be physically born into a church, but to be spiritually born into Christ. And so I think unwittingly, although it's, it has the best of intentions, blurs the line of the church. So if you were infant baptized, uh, I don't think you were biblically baptized, and I think that you should be baptized. Um, and I want to, me or any of the pastors will sit down and talk with you more at length about that. Um, okay, let me get into question number three very quickly. At what age is it appropriate for a believer to be baptized? So at this point, we're well within the camp of the believer's only position, uh, understanding, assuming that the, the Bible teaches believer's only baptism. Then the question comes, at what age should, especially thinking about children? Here I want to help parents think through when their children should be baptized, especially, obviously, and only children who have uh, expressed faith in Christ. We have written a short two-page paper that's on our website. You can find the link to it. You can go to it and read this, these thoughts more fully that will be helpful to you. But just a summary, um, classically in baptistic circles, in credo-baptist or believers-only baptism circles through the history of the church, there have been two camps or two positions on when we should baptize a child that is, is expressing faith in Christ, that there should be immediate participation. So a child even as young as maybe six, seven, eight years old, immediately that expresses faith in like children's church or at a VBS or something, immediate, quick, and maybe some, uh, you know, obviously an examination of that child. But if that child is, is giving an appropriate confession of Christ, even at their age, we should, we should immediately baptize them soon thereafter. The other position would be more of a withholding position and that we should delay baptism for a child until that child has spent a little time maturing so that we can discern the credibility of that child's profession of faith. Now, that withholding position is not saying that 
young children, even very young children, can't come to true saving faith. It's just merely saying that it's often very difficult to discern the validity of a child's confession of faith. And so we're going to hold off and, and delay the baptism a little bit until the child is a little bit older um, and, and is able to give a more credible profession of faith. Our practice here has been to lean more towards the withholding. Not that we don't believe that very young children can come to true saving faith. That may have been the case for some or many of you. But we think it is very difficult to discern. And as a church, we have a responsibility to authenticate the confession of a believer regardless of what age. And so in a sense, baptism, and I didn't really even talk about this in believer's baptism, more than just an individual being grafted to Christ in union with Christ, it's a statement of the church where we, whereby we are, in a sense, issuing somebody a passport to the kingdom. That's how baptism functions, I think, in a lot of ways. It's a kind of spiritual passport. So think about this. You are if you're an American, you're, you're American because you were born in America. Your passport doesn't save you. But your passport declares to the nations that you're part of that kingdom. Well, that's how baptism functions in the New Testament. It's tied to the local church. And that's why I think you should be baptized in the context of the local church and not by your buddies in a swimming pool. Because baptism is an act, not of an individual, but of the church it's an ordinance of the church whereby the church says this person, we're validating this person's testimony as best we can tell, as best we can tell, they're part of us and we're issuing them the passport and so it validates your testimony to the nations. And it's, it's hard to do that for a very young child. And part of our responsibility of a church is to make sure we do that faithfully. And here's what's happening, I think, in, in, a, in a child's heart. Good things are happening in a child's heart when they, when they express faith in Jesus. But a young child expresses faith in Jesus. It may be true faith. It may be true saving faith at that point. But it may be at that point that child just doing what they think they should do and just trying to please mom and dad, okay? And just sort of going on, well, you know, this guy's doing it, so I'm going to do it. Now, that's not a bad thing. I'm not, that's good peer pressure. We want a child to be like thinking, well, this is a good thing to do. That's, that's part of the nurture and admonition in the Lord that we should raise our children in. But we don't want to get in between a parent's nurturing and admonition of a child at too early of an age and intercept and unwittingly do the very thing that we've just critiqued about infant baptism and wrongly apply the sign before the reality. Do you get that? And so I think Baptist churches that too aggressively baptize children too young unwittingly do the same thing that they critique infant Baptist churches for doing. Applying the sign to something that we're not really sure the reality has happened. And so for that reason, I think there's some ambiguity here, but we just encourage parents to wait. I, th this isn't set in stone, but I just think it's good to wait until child encounters uh, the age of puberty, whatever that may be. I know that differs for each child, but that's sort of when, that's sort of the first taste that many people get of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, and so that can be a good time when a child at that point is really having to wrestle with inordinate, ungodly desires and things around them that are tugging on them. 
and we can see true fruits of conversion rather than just fruits of obedience to the parents. Now, that's not a hard and fast rule. I'd be open to baptizing a children young and that, but that child would have to, that'd be a pretty high bar for that child in their maturity. And the reason why we're, we're, we're a bit reticent to set an age is because every person is different and everybody matures differently. So there's some, I think there's some pastoral um, uh, wideness to that, to that. So what evidences or signs, and I'll stop with this, what evidences uh, or signs of conversion should a parent look for in their child before presenting him or her for baptism or talking to one of the elders? That's the thing, talking to one of the elders about whether or not their child. This is, I think, a cooperative effort between a parent who has primary responsibility for that child and the, the church leadership. We come together to help one another. And so it's the church, it's, the, it's an ordinance of the church, but we're not usurping parents, we're coming together. So what evidences or signs should a parent look for when they think about discussing with the pastors and elders the candidacy of their child's baptism? Does your child demonstrate sorrow and remorse for his or her sin? And of course, nobody does that perfectly. No child would either. Does your child recognize that he has sinned against God and not just against others? Does your child confess her sins or his sins to God and ask for mercy without prompting? Does your child understand that she or he is saved only by God's grace and not because of any good within themselves? Does your child demonstrate an understanding of the storyline of the Bible, even at, a, even at a, a childlike level, when they are taught, or is your child generally kind of still confused by just a basic storyline of the Bible? Does your child demonstrate a genuine interest in spiritual things apart from your prompting? Does your child pray or read scripture on their own initiative? What sins has your child repented of? Are they, these sins of the heart or merely a recognition that they failed to comply outwardly with the laws of God? And I realize these things can be hard to determine, but these are just questions to think about. Does your child desire to talk with you about scriptures and the things of the Lord? How does your child demonstrate that he or she trusts in Jesus? Does your child demonstrate a genuine desire to tell others about Jesus? These are questions. Not like it, it, no, none, of a, none of us, and maybe they've been baptized, are going to score 100 on that test, right? I'm just saying these are things to just help you think about and shepherd your child's heart realizing that nobody does that perfectly. It's just, it gives you an indication of the, the, the fruit that's in a, a child. Um, and so, and then in conversation with pastors and elders, we'll sit down with you and talk with you about that. All right, that's all I have. Any questions about this before it's, it's already 7.30, so maybe a question or two. Anybody have a question? Drew. Um. There's definitely a lot of people like on both sides that have a tendency, um, and I don't say this like harshly, but mm -hmm. to kind of minimize baptism almost, yeah. to say it's a secondary issue, so it doesn't, isn't really a big deal. I'm just kind of curious how you would speak to that. Yeah, yeah I think that's the case. I, I, I mean, I would agree with that. I would, I'd say it's a very serious issue, and... Um, so I would say, I'd say that, I'd say on both sides, I would say to many of you who might be inclined to agree with the position of this church, but you haven't been baptized, and maybe you're embarrassed to be baptized, or just kind of social, you just say, oh, that was a long time ago, I haven't been baptized. Man, this is an obedience issue. This is an obedience issue to Christ. It's not a good way to live the Christian life when the, the, the last thing Jesus says to his disciples is, do this, and you're just like, nah, I'll do some of the other stuff. That's a, that's a bad place to be. And then I would say, so the, I think lots of people, lots of Baptistic people fall into that category. It's kind of a, oh, whatever. 
And then I would say to my infant Baptistic friends, and I, I want to say this charitably, the majority of the ones that I have encountered don't really understand the theological position of infant baptism. They, they're in that mindset because that's the church that they grew up in or that's what their parents did and they haven't really thought through the implications of that and I think maybe if and sometimes when I've tried to walk people through that I've actually had a couple conversations with people and they're like oh yeah I see that I think I see that and I kind of think I agree with that but you know what I they kind of back away because I feel like they they don't want to disrespect their parents or they don't want to that's kind of embarrassing and like, ah, oh, that's a discipleship issue. Right there, you got to make a decision. Now, I know that there are people that I love and maybe even here tonight that have a convictional view that infant baptism is what the Bible teaches. I disagree with you. I think you're wrong. Um, but I find that there aren't many people like that out there in the pew. Most of the people that have a real conviction about it are more th like theologians in the Reformed tradition or Presbyterian pastors. Um, and so I would, I would push on that a little bit. And I'd say, really understand what you believe and don't just shuffle along. Don't just shuffle along. So I'd kind of critique both people. Baptism is very, very important. It's an ordinance of the church. God has always wanted to mark out his people. And you're marked out, not just by coming, but you're marked out by this initial sign of baptism. And then baptism is related to the table. We, 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 baptism is the initiating right into the people of God, and the table is the continuing right of the people of God, which I didn't even really get into, but really there's a theological position in the history of the church, is that, you, that historically most churches don't admit people to the table that haven't first been baptized. And I, I, think, there's, there's a, a, I, think, I think that's, there's a lot of truth to that. Um, but it's a very important issue. It's one of the two things that God says will mark out his people. So I think you need to think deeply about this. Let me commend this to you if you want more in-depth. Go to Ligonier's website. Ligonier is R.C. Sproul's teaching ministry, L-I-G-O-N-I-E-R. Now, that's a Presbyterian Reformed website, which I, I love a lot of stuff on there, but they're advocating the infant baptism position, which I just told you I disagree with. But you can search, type in MacArthur and Sproul debate, and there is a debate between John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul has since passed away. This was done, I don't know, 10 years ago, where John MacArthur gives the credo, believers-only baptism position, and R.C. Sproul gives the infant baptism position. I was much more persuaded by MacArthur's talk, obviously, but that might be a good thing for you just to kind of drill down and really understand um, both sides even more thoroughly. Yeah, is that John Pye back there? This will be the last question, and then I want to be sensitive to time. And I'll stick around and answer any questions that you guys have. Um, uh, good evening, Pastor Brad. Hey, brother. Um, so my, my wife, Angela, and I, we mm -hmm. attended uh, our friend's wedding a few weeks ago in Atlanta, friends uh -huh. who used to be members of Crosspoint uh -huh. uh, before they moved out of Columbus. Um, during the reception, I sat and got to know the pastor who officiated, and he's a, he was a Presbyterian uh, pastor, uh -huh. and I told him I was a, a Southern Baptist, so naturally we started talking about uh, infant baptism. Where we, where we did agree uh, was that we both affirmed that water baptism was a physical representation, a symbol of uh, spiritual baptism. Uh -huh. um, uh, so my question then is, uh, is, it, is it biblical 
uh, to believe that God uh, can and or does uh, spiritually baptize those who cannot make that conscious decision. So this would obviously apply to um, uh, severely mentally disabled people, Mm -hmm. uh, people in comas, or uh, Mm -hmm. infants. What do do you think? Yeah. Um, I don't think the Bible speaks directly to this issue. Um, Historically, John, that's a great question, and it's a deeply important and pastoral question. What happens to infants that die um, in a that are aborted or are miscarried or children that die before you know they're, they have uh, a kind of awareness or or even mentally incapacitated people? I will tell you the historic position of of almost all of the Protestant reformers has either been I don't know, or actually the majority has been we see in the Bible we can trust the good character of God and the pastoral leaning is that all those who die in infancy are amongst God's elect. But I want to say that I think it's difficult to build a real clear biblical case. Maybe you can look at David in his, um, is it in, in uh, somebody can find the reference for me, First and Second Samuel, where David is talking about, Second Samuel, where he's talking about the infant, the, the child that dies, the t- child that was born to Bathsheba dies, and he makes some statement like, I will see you again, sort of in his lament. And so there's this sense that David is speaking about how he will see that child again in eternity. Some people have thought about that. And then there's a, a, a thought at the end of John chapter 9 on the case where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And he's, he's just healed the blind man. And then he's, up, he's, 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 he's really criticizing the Pharisees for their spiritual blindness. And he makes a statement at the end of John 9 where he says that, Look, if you, if, if, if you are blind you know, you're, and you don't really see, there's really no guilt on you. But once you see, once you hear this, you know, you, you're, you're now culpable for it. And some people have built out from that, that where a person dies before there's moral awareness or culpability for guilt, that there's, there's no punishment for sin. I think, again, that's a thin case. I think it's better to say that we can look at the steadfast love of the Lord, that God, according to Ephesians 2, is rich in mercy. And I think we can say to a mother that has just lost a child, a stillborn child or a young, very young child or has, has miscarried a child, that we can have great confidence that God does all things well and that that child is with the Lord. And that's my pastoral hope. But that's my best answer. And it's hard for me to say that, though, directly from a passage. I said this was going to be the last question, but my daughter Arabella has her hand raised, and I can't say no to my daughter. Oh, you, you actually, you have the Bible reference? Okay, give it to us, sweetheart. Oh, proud dad moment going on right here. Um, so the whole passage, if you want to write it Just down. Just don't disagree with me, please. No. <laughs> okay, go, go, go ahead. Um, the whole, I'm going to read just a little section okay. of it, but the whole passage, if you want to write it down, is 2 Samuel 12... Uh, 15 through 23 okay. is uh, David's child died. Um, I think the specific verse where that you were talking about, maybe this is it. Um, it says, he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Yeah. I shall go to him, but he shall, yeah. So I will go to him in heaven. Thank you, sweetheart. You're welcome. <laughs> Man. Nah, come on. I'm going I'm to I'm 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 start shadowboxing right now. 
All right, well, let me pray. Thank you guys for your patience. I hope this has been helpful, um, and I'll stick around to answer any questions that you may have. And if I can't answer them, I will refer you to Arabella. <laughs> Lord, thank you for your kindness to us. Lord, uh, we, do, we, do, we do want to think deeply. We want to be, be biblical people. And wherever we land, we want to be driven not by uh, church culture. We don't want to be Baptists because we grew up in a Baptist church. And we don't want to be Pado baptists because we grew up in a Presbyterian church. Wherever we stand, we want to be where we are because that's what we believe your word teaches. And so to that end, Lord, help us think deeply about this issue and help give us the courage to obey. If there's a person in this room whose heart is pricked, and they have not obeyed you in baptism for, for, for reasons, really, of, of the flesh. Convict them and cause them to walk in obedience. That's the promise of the new covenant, that you will write your law in our hearts and you will cause us to walk in, our, in your statutes. So do that for anybody in this room. I pray that you're working on. In Jesus' name, amen.